Welcome to Design World's Technology Tuesdays podcast, conversations about new technologies and approaches for design engineering. Hello, this is Lisa Itell with Design World. Today we're chatting with Marissa Tucker, Product Manager of Controls and HMI at Parker Hannafin, about specifying controls based on standards rather than brands. Tucker is a mechanical engineer who has worked in the industry for eight years. So, Marissa, thanks for talking with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, letting me be here. Absolutely. First, tell us a little bit about where we are in the industry with a lot of automated operations wedded to one controller brand and one brand alone. What's that all about? Yeah, that's a really great question. And the industry has actually really shifted, I would say, pretty substantially in the last five years or so. Ten years ago, there was really only thing that we would be chatting about in the automation industry, and that would predominantly be Allen Bradley. And Allen Bradley is still one of the biggest PLC manufacturers, obviously, within the United States, massive adoption rate. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the biggest reasons um, is because they did such a good job educating people in the United States to learn about ladder diagrams. They embedded themselves within universities, and they had great outreach. And so today, as the workforce has aged quite a bit since, you know, the 80s, everyone knows ladder diagram. It's what they're comfortable with. It's what they've been using their entire career. The challenges that new PLCs have come into the market, especially from Europe, or European style controls, as I'll call them, that are using a new standard called IEC 61131-3. They're starting to get a foothold in the marketplace. And the reason for that is because it's not just one language for one controller. All of a sudden, this standard is being used by a whole slew of manufacturers, whether that's going to be Beckoff or Omron, of course, Parker, BNR, and so many others use that same foundational standard. So that way, people can migrate from one controller brand to the other. And so we're starting to see market share change quite a bit, but there's still a substantial juggernaut in the room uh, where people continue to just say, hey, that's great. I'm glad that exists, but I'm not interested in that. We're going to continue to specify and use Alan Bradley. It's what we're comfortable with. Fascinating. Obviously, familiarity and habit on the part of design engineers, those are two big drivers for keeping with Ladder Logic and Alan Bradley. What else might stand in the way of engineers adopting new standards for automation? Yeah, that's a really great question um, because it's not as simple as the specifications leading the engineers. A lot of times, it actually ends up being the C-suite or, you know, the CEO, uh, maybe even the engineering manager. But what we're finding is that a lot of young, ambitious, creative engineers are coming out of the marketplace, and they're really interested in exploring these different types of languages, what else is out there. And they don't have the ability to be impactful in their company because management says, no, you must use this particular controller. And the reason they say you must use this brand is not because of usually the technological advantages, but it's usually because of special deals that they end up getting that revolve around special support deals that they get, maybe special licensing deals on software that they might achieve where they feel like they're saving money for whatever reason or the other. And so because of these non-engineering decisions that are being made at a higher level, I hear all the time, like, 
I have to use Alan Bradley. I have to because I'm told to. I'd rather use something else but they feel that they're not empowered to make those decisions and choices. And so that's a really big challenge that a lot of engineers are being faced, both in small-sized companies, mid-sized companies, and large-sized companies as well. So how, as we as an industry then, empower these design engineers to choose the tools that they want for programming and controlling, even if it goes against what company leadership might want? Yeah, um, and it can be a little bit of an uphill battle. But I think that's where the standard IEC 611.31-3 has done a really, really great job. And that's why it's starting to gain quite a bit of market share within the United States, because it is a standard, first and foremost. It came out of substantial recognition that a lot of controllers, whether they're PLCs or even throwing in motion controllers here a little bit, they all had such segmented proprietary languages. And because of that, if you had one engineer move between one company to another, if they weren't using Allen Bradley, all of a sudden that meant that they had to relearn an entirely new language from scratch, which means that once you hire an engineer, they might not be able to functionally provide any type of productive output for three to six months while they're learning this new controller language, they're learning this whole new system. So what IEC 611.31-3 does is it allows manufacturers to just say, okay, we are not going to specify a particular brand. We're going to specify this language set and this language standard. So that way, if you do have employees, integrators, all across the vertical of this industry, moving from one product to another, one company to another, no matter who that they are using, manufacturer-wise, they will be able to immediately understand how it was programmed and to use the controller. Now, of course, there's going to be some proprietary differences in, in, in the GUI interface and some of the setup and configuration, but in essence, the hardest part, the programming, that really is what takes the longest time to learn. All of a sudden, that breaks down all of those barriers. And so now, instead of saying, hey, go buy that one, Bradley, you can say specify IEC 611-31-3. And a lot of C-suite people don't realize that they can do that. They don't have to specify brand. And that really enables their lower level engineers to be empowered to pick the best technology that's available, but also make sure that they're still on a standard so that they're not, you know, spending a lot of time trying to migrate from one controller to another. Instead, they're able to choose the best technology from whatever is out there in the universe and still be able to program it in a rapid way. Excellent. And just out of curiosity, are there places, for example, where structured text might be more appropriate than ladder logic? Like when you talk about the different languages that are defined by 611.31, do the different languages lend themselves better to different applications? Absolutely. I would argue, though, and, and this, again, is a little bit more into programming philosophy, and I just have to warn everyone that's listening to this right now, everyone has a different methodology for programming. Okay. But I would argue that the best use of the IEC 611.31-3 languages is when they are used together. So maybe an example might help. If a listener isn't familiar with IEC, uh, we can kind of walk through what those each of the languages are and how they might be used. Super. 
Yeah, so real quick, just in case to make sure we're all on the same page, sequential function chart, or SFC, is probably the highest level language, and, and calling it a language isn't very fair, because what it really is is a visual display of the state machines, or the modes that your machine may currently be in. So in each one of these states, whether you're, it's your initialization state, and you can go from your initialization state to your standby state, and then maybe from there you can go to an automatic state versus a manual mode, et cetera, et cetera. It basically is a diagram that shows how your machine should operate. And I'm going to emphasize that word operate because sometimes I like to call it the operator layer where anyone can be able to walk up, look at sequential function chart, and immediately understand how the machine is supposed to function and what the steps are from you know, a part coming in or uh, material coming in and what the end result is going to be and look like and what the process is for that. Now, the power of that is that because you have each of these separate modes, you can actually then go into each one of the modes and what I like to call go down a layer to what I like to call the maintenance layer. Now, when we do talk about IEC 611.31-3, everyone gets super nervous that we're talking about like getting rid of ladder in entirety. No one is talking about that because there's a lot of maintenance personnel and a lot of history in the United States, and people are very familiar with it. Um, and it's an easy go-to visual language that clearly displays, here are my set of inputs, here is the actions that is going to happen in that particular mode, and here is the expected output. So that is a perfect maintenance layer because I can see, hey, if my start button is getting pressed and I'm expecting these actions to happen, but I'm not getting a particular output, maybe there's something going on between uh, that input being pressed and the action that's supposed to take. So I need to investigate that aspect of the machine. Within that mode, I can then write that particular code ladder. The challenge is, is then, okay, ladder can be somewhat limiting. If, if you're a traditional programmer, you like Python, C Sharp, C++, any text-based language or anything you might have learned in college, these level of visual languages can be limiting. And so whether you're doing mathematics, complex mathematics, whether you're doing any type of data processing, even doing something as complicated if you wanted to create your own driver to communicate between two different devices, you would never want to do that in ladder. One, it would take you absolutely forever to click and drag and create your coils. It's just a hot mess. And it would just be rungs and rungs and rungs of just this visual code that for most people is just impossible to debug. So instead, people can generate function blocks. Here's my action. Here's my output. Action can be wrapped up in a function block because the maintenance personnel doesn't need to necessarily see that developer back-end code. And so that is where we usually recommend people come in. They put their structured text in that function block, and that can be locked down, too, into a library. So it can be compiled. It could be part of your intellectual property that you don't allow anyone else to have access to. And so then you have that back-end structured text. And so that kind of layering of the code at minimum, having that level of thought process of how I'm going to write my code in such a way that it communicates to the different people who are going to be using this machine, 
I think it's a very valid activity. There are some existing frameworks and guidelines, for instance, PACML, but it does ask those same questions is who's going to be reading this code and what is the best language for them to interpret what the program is trying to do. So I think that's the best use of IEC 611-11-3. Quick question about the roots of all of these languages. Where were some of these really born in process control versus discrete motion control? And does that make certain languages more common even today in motion? Even if you answer the questions of who's going to be viewing this particular code, how best to communicate that information and what language is appropriate, That doesn't necessarily mean that you want to use that particular language every time to perform every task because we do have more process-oriented concerns that we have to take care of versus, as you're saying, the more kind of discrete style of motion control. The nice thing about IEC 611-31-3 is it kind of actually blends all of that together. People can make the argument that when we do use like PLC open motion control function blocks, again, Another standard that the industry has come out with to try to kind of level the playing field between all of the manufacturers for motion control. So, you know, these things like MC underscore power to power your drives or MC underscore jog uh, to get a motor moving. I think you want to do motion control function blocks probably either at the latter level simply because a maintenance person might want to view, hey, this is doing this. Okay, now we're great. We're ready to go versus something like sequential function chart, which is supposed to be kind of a higher level. Here's where I am in my entire process. Some, of course, are going to you know, be screaming on the other end of this podcast saying, oh, no, structure text is the best for every situation. But um, I think you have to be cognizant, again, of what you're trying to communicate. So I, I think because of the different layers and because you can't have that higher level state machine versus, you know, your your lower level programming, which would be most appropriate in, again, ladder or structured text. You could really use either one, but again, just be cognizant of your audience. Yeah, right on. I'm yeah. not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. No, I think you did. Funny okay. thing is that you mentioned function block diagram as like an example of, you know, maybe something to level the playing field for discrete motion, especially. And I always perceive function block diagrams to be something more associated with process. Yeah, especially with PACs being in the market and the way that the industry has really changed again over the uh, last five years is you used to have different devices that performed all these functions. Like you had your separate motion controller set aside from your PLC, set aside from your HMI. And really we used to talk about these as very different processes. And that's why you had to have the different devices and the way that they process and executed code. It's all in one single device now. And so that's substantially changed the way we kind of program and the way that we think about, you know, discrete versus process. It, it really is just all on one device now. And I think the IEC languages have done a great job of, of allowing you to blend those together and, and make the decisions on what language makes best for this action. What are some other options? You've got your programmable automation controllers as an alternative setup to what exactly? Let's go through a historical deep dive here, just real quick, because I think it's important to understand the alternatives. You look at um, the industry, and it used to be so incredibly segmented. You would have your SCADA layer on top. Then you might even have your machine-level HMI, 
separate device in your, your PLC and then a separate device coming down to your motion control or other more complex processes that the PLC could not handle. And now as we see this evolution of this blending of motion control and vision systems and robotics all being handled by a single pack and, you know, blend in even HMI to that and now blend in them actually acting as gateways, you know, to the cloud, we are asking so much more of our controllers than we used to. So when we do talk about what are the different options outside of packs, there are different architects out there. Like you can still do a PLC and a motion control. It's very valid. You still see it out there. But I would say the biggest difference that you would see outside of a pack, well, what is a pack? It's, it's really, when you look at the nuts and bolts, it's, it's really an industrial PC that's running soft motion and a real-time operating system to handle all that logic. So the real alternative is for people to be building their own applications on industrial PCs. And even in that sector, we're seeing a lot of standardization that we have not seen in the past, for instance, with Ross Industrial, uh, which is a robotic operating system that has been recently had some additional stacks added to handle some of the more industrial applications where it's completely open source, it's free, readily available online. Um, there's tons of resources and help out there for it, um, which is another huge, huge benefit of standardizing across you know, our industry is the fact that professionals can actually help each other uh, rather than being so siloed. Um, and with so few controls engineers out there, we, we need to have that support. And so that open source culture absolutely has begun to really embed itself in the industrial sphere in a way it, it never has seen before. So you, you either got a PEC or you got a PC somewhere in your system. That's, that's really your only two options when you're a controlling machine right now. It's crazy with Ross. The standard there has even conveyor companies. We just saw it automate, getting involved in coordination of robotic operations. I mean, it's a topic for another day. You know, your PACs operating as gateways to the cloud and then got the enterprise. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on in our industry right now. But I think some of the, the standardization that we're kind of talking about that we're, we're seeing in our industry, I think a huge part of it has just come out of absolute necessity. You don't see manufacturers usually band together and go, let's, you know, all get on the same programming standard because that, you know, that causes, um, you know, challenges for manufacturers, right? We have to make sure we're always adding value to remain competitive. You know, the more standards that we agree upon, you know, there's always that risk of commoditizing our market, but it's come out of absolute necessity because, especially with the influences of the Silicon Valley and just absolutely blowing up, you know, in the last decade, we have had a lot of engineers going to high-tech firms and forget the fact that industrial is a high-tech technology. Right. Um, our industry is very technology-oriented. And because of that draw from talent, we have had to say, no, we have to adopt standardization so that we can make sure that the talent we have is able to work within our entire industry and get our products to work together first and foremost, and that we can share talent in a really cohesive way. But in addition, it's also taken on that open source idea that is so popular with, with young people and with programmers since 
programmers came to be, which is the ability to share code and the ability to share and pass on knowledge. That's how we get better as an industry together. So the great thing about even IEC 611.31-3, if you look at OSCAP function blocks, they're free, they're readily available online, they're open source, they work with pretty much most companies that either use Codasys as kind of the base engine, which is a lot of them, and all of a sudden, you know, you have access to all these forms and help that otherwise you would have been on your own for. So I think it's come out of out of necessity and a, and a huge cultural influence from from the, the programming culture in the valley. You know, sometimes I'm a little bit of a skeptic. We hear a lot about portability of software, even with the six eleven thirty one exchange formats and standards. How well can you really move? XML files, say if I want to move from one PLC to another, how well do XML files really work for importing and exporting? And how much are manufacturers really motivated to make that work and really not lock engineers onto one specific hardware anymore? Oh, you are completely right to be skeptical. So in essence, it's extremely difficult. It depends on the manufacturer, but specifically when we're talking about the PLC level of manufacturing, because there are some other devices that might use soft motion or IEC, like some smart drives, but especially at like the PLC or the PAC level, um, there is a huge motivation to lock down users to a particular brand. And the way that they end up doing that is with their libraries. And so even if you do have XML files, if you are using a very specific, say, Omron library that they've come up with, that's not going to be able to transfer to another device very easily. Um, you might have to rewrite parts of that code. So a lot of manufacturers will do that. And it's very, very common but the one thing that I will say and why standardization on, on the language is still so important rather than the manufacturer is that if you decide to go with a particular manufacturer for one project and you decide, you know what, for whatever reason, we weren't satisfied with it. Yes, you're going to have to do some migration. But the, the biggest challenge for people moving from one device to another brand-wise is the learning curve. It's learning that language. And so you're always going to have to make adjustments in your code. If you're changing your PLC from one to another on the same machine, which is, is pretty rare, but it just means you don't have to start from scratch when you make that migration. So it empowers you as an engineer to actually drive your manufacturer to make better technology and to be competitive because they have less power over you to say, oh, well, our guys are never going to move because they're already familiar with our language, they're already familiar with their software, so they'll never move to someone else. Well, all of a sudden, they, they can't do that anymore. They have to remain competitive. They have to you know, keep up with technology because even though there, you know, it would be a huge effort to move from one machine to another to a PLC, that doesn't mean that on the next design that you still get to keep them. So you're always constantly fighting as a manufacturer for your customers with these types of standards. And I think generally that's a good thing. So it's really about empowering the programmers. It's not necessarily making it easy to totally convert one machine to the other as, as easy as possible. It's about saying, okay, well, I don't have to be stuck with them forever. 
just out of curiosity, what would drive an engineer to move? Do you see that being like a concern about performance or is it reliability? Is it sometimes just price? You know, I I don't think this is going to be a trade secret for anyone that support is so big. Support is just so, so big to our customers. If for some reason they feel like they're not getting the support that they need, um, if they're having some contention for whatever reason, um, that is a huge reason why people choose to migrate. I found that a struggle over lead time can also be a motivating factor to move from one to another, especially in a machine down situation. It's really in those kind of critical times where as customers, if you've sent a machine, you put it into commission, all of a sudden your, your customer's calling you because it's down and you need all the support you need to get the machine up and running. They're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars an hour. You know, they, they want to make sure that you have their back. And that, for me, I think today that's the number one reason why people will choose to move from one manufacturer to another. In terms of hardware specification and performance, I think overall our industry is doing a much better job in the past few years, really making sure we're keeping up to date with the latest technology, the latest processors. So that's something I I think overall we've done pretty well. And across all platforms, they are pretty competitive. So it's, it's really that added value of, one, how good is your GUI interface? Two, does this have the functionality to solve what I'm trying to solve as easy as possible? So again, providing those function blocks, that GUI interface. And three, when I get stuck, are you going to be there? And that is in two ways, both support and, of course, those lead times. Marissa, you're motivated in part to chat with us about specifying to standards because Parker Hannafin uh, aims to gain some market share, I assume. Would you just, uh, yeah, give us a little bit about Parker Automation Manager and other offerings? It's probably no surprise to your audience at this point that we we have a PAC controller, our Parker Automation Controller, that uh, uses the base of IEC 611.31-3. And I just want to just quickly note to customers that there are a lot of manufacturers out there that say they support that standard but they might only support one language of that standard or aspects of that language. We follow it to a T and we support all of the IEC 61131 languages, not just one or two. We do support them all. That's just something as you're looking at specifying controllers, just make sure you you are aware of that. And our PAC controller, we, we really do believe that kind of integration that we've been talking about because it's not just about supporting standards. It's also about making it easier to program, again, as a motivating factor for why someone would choose one brand over the other. And we think this continual integration between all of our devices, the motion controller, the HMI, the PLC, and again, that gateway out to the cloud, encapsulating that all in a single device is hugely advantageous. And one of the things we didn't mention today, which is a huge motivation for someone going from one controller to the other, is now safety. Are they keeping up with the latest safety standards? Um, That's something that's becoming increasingly important in the United States. So we also need to be supporting, you know, uh, functional safety over EtherCAT. So I would say PAC is an excellent, excellent gateway drug into IEC 611.31-3. And the reason I say that... (laughs) It's true. <laughs> um, the reason I say that is because as, as, a, as a manufacturer, you know, you do have the choice to decide, you know, where are we going to make our money? 
And one of the things that we've come to a decision is that, you know what, there's a lot of manufacturers out there that charge a lot of money for software. So oftentimes you're having to make huge investments to even just try out a software. You have this huge licensing mess. We just decided to make it super easy. So if IEC 6131-3 is something that interests your audience and they're not sure kind of where to start, go to parker.com slash EMN slash PAC or PAC, and you can actually download our software for free and use simulation mode, and you can start playing around with IEC. See if that does make something that makes sense to start specifying for your company. I think across the board, starting to specify on standards is just good practice for everyone. Hopefully, you know, with a free trial, you can say, hey, you know, Parker kind of knows where it's at. Like, this is where direction we want to go. But I think no matter what manufacturer you end up going with, it doesn't matter, right? Because you've now selected a standard and you have more power to use one versus the other. Marissa, your insight is fabulous. I always enjoy talking with you. Um, Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And of course, if you have any questions, you know where to find me. Awesome. This has been a Design World Network podcast. Design World is published by WTWH Media.